Virginia Woolf, Mrs. Dalloway, Part 1. My intent is to work with about one-fourth of the novel in each of these segments so that they don't get too long, but it is a difficult novel to break down because there are no chapters, and of course every edition would have different page numbers. So we will have to use specific passages of the novel to identify the breaks. Before we begin, a few remarks. While it is one of the earliest examples of the modernist novel, Mrs. Dalloway invokes the classical Greek mode of drama by adhering, in its own way, to what Aristotle called the three unities of time, place, and action. All the action takes place at a single location, London, during a single day, a June day in 1923, five years after the Great War. The third unity, unity of action, means that there is supposed to be a single plot that is complete in itself with no subplots. We could actually argue that the novel violates this one, and in fact, we might also argue that the role of memory, which is so important to the novel, represents a violation of the unities of time and place as well, but the novel's temporal and spatial setting clearly suggests the classical unities reimagined in a modernist framework. I want to start with two broad themes, the novel's unique approach to time and its handling of consciousness. I suggest, as the French philosopher and critic Paul Ricoeur does, that a persistent theme in the novel is its use of what St. Augustine, writing in the 4th century AD, called the threefold present. In chapter 11 of his book, Confessions, this early Christian theologian wrestles with the same problem that troubled Aristotle, the paradoxical nature of time. Augustine's particular problem was his attempt to reconcile God who was outside time in eternity, and human time. Here are two famous passages. It is abundantly clear that neither the future nor the past exist, and therefore it is not strictly correct to say that there are three times, past, present, and future. It might be correct to say that there are three times, a present of past things, a present of present things, and a present of future things. Some such different times do exist in the mind, but nowhere else that I can see. The present of past things is the memory, the present of present things is direct perception, and the present of future things is expectation. End quote. So this is Augustine's threefold present, and here is his famous illustration of it. Quote, Suppose that I am going to recite a psalm that I know. Before I begin, my faculty of expectation is engaged by the whole of it. But once I have begun, as much of the psalm as I have removed from the province of expectations and relegated to the past now engages my memory, and the scope of the action which I am performing is divided between the two faculties of memory and expectation the one looking back to the past which I have already recited, the other looking forward to the part which I have still to recite. 
but my faculty of attention is present all the while, and through it passes what was the future in the process of becoming the past, end quote. Clarissa Dalloway, along with some of the other characters in Virginia Woolf's novel, occupy a present that is enriched by vivid memories of the past and expectations of the future. We will also consider the way that Big Ben's chiming, those, quote, leaden circles dissolving in the air, end quote, mark out the official or monumental time of the novel, so very different from the subjective temporal experience of the characters. The other theme that I want to look at briefly is consciousness. Here is a brief excerpt from a book by Jean O. Love entitled Worlds in Consciousness, Mythopoetic Thought in the Novels of Virginia Woolf. In Mrs. Dalloway, relationships are determined by coincidence in space, paths cross, coincidence in time, someone doing something at the same time as someone else, and coincidence in memory, which contributes the third dimension. The two categories of space and time are alternated regularly in order to affect transition between different situations. Time is held constant as the novel goes from character to character at a given moment, or space is constant with movement up and down in a single consciousness in relationship to a specified scene, end quote. What is very striking and a bit confusing at times is the way that the narrative consciousness is handed off from one character to another, often without much fanfare. This often takes place as characters pass on the street or observe a common event. At the beginning of the novel, we immediately plunge into the world of the 51-year-old Clarissa Dalloway, buying flowers, anticipating that evening's party, and flashing back to a memory from when she was 18. Her memory is of a summer at Borton. What is the significance of this place, this memory? What happened there and then that was so important? These questions will haunt us as we work our way through the novel. Mrs. Dalloway also has an awareness of her future death, as we will sometimes see. The existentialist German philosopher Martin Heidegger called this being toward death, the way that our being in the present is overshadowed by the knowledge that we, like Clarissa, must inevitably cease completely. All this must go on without us. In this spirit, she reads words from Shakespeare's Cymbeline in a book spread open in a shop, words from a funeral song that all comes to dust in the end, words that she echoes at various points in the novel. The novel begins with these words. Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself, for Lucy had her work cut out for her. The doors would be taken off their hinges. Rumpelmayer's men were coming. And then, thought Clarissa Dalloway, what a morning, fresh as if issued to children on a beach. What a lark, what a plunge, for so it had always seemed to her when, with the little squeak of the hinges, which she could hear now, she had burst open the French windows and plunged at Borton into the open air. End quote. 
and this refers to her memory as a girl of 18. In the next paragraph, we begin to see Wolf's process of handing off consciousness from one character to another. Sometimes it is a person of no seeming importance, sometimes a passerby, as we see in the third or fourth paragraph of the novel. She stiffened a little on the curb, waiting for Dirtnall's van to pass. A charming woman, Scrope Purvis thought her, knowing her as one does know people who live next door to one in Westminster. A touch of the bird about her, of the jay, blue-green, light, vivacious, though she was over fifty, and grown very white since her illness. There she perched, never seeing him, waiting to cross very upright." We get this little description of Clarissa Dalloway from another point of view, from a character who never appears again in the novel. A few details are important. There is a touch of the bird about her, and the fact that she has had a recent illness and has grown pale. This narrative technique of Wolf's allows us to see characters from various points of view, and almost immediately we hear from Big Ben. There, out it boomed, first a warning, musical, then the hour, irrevocable. The leaden circles dissolved in the air. End quote. The chiming of Big Ben reminds us periodically of the public or official time of our lives. We soon learn that it is the middle of June, the war is over, and there are some who are still living with their grief. Quote, For it was the middle of June. The war was over, except for someone like Mrs. Foxcroft at the embassy last night, eating her heart out because that nice boy was killed, and now the old manor house must go to a cousin, or Lady Bexborough, who opened a bazaar, they said, with a telegram in her hand, John, her favorite, killed. But it was over. Thank heaven, over. It was June. End quote. There is another reference to Borton, and then soon after, Clarissa sees a book in a bookstore window open to Shakespeare's Cymbeline and reads these words, Fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages. This phrase, fear no more the heat of the sun, will keep coming back to her throughout the novel. As Mrs. Dalloway is in the flower shop buying flowers, one of these events occurs that unites everyone in the present. A passing car backfires and everyone notices it. In 1923, motor cars are still somewhat of a novelty. Moreover, the explosion probably serves as a reminder of the recent war. At this point, we have a brief introduction to another character who happens to be passing by. Quote, Septimus Warren Smith, aged about 30, pale-faced, beak-nosed, wearing brown shoes and a shabby overcoat, with hazel eyes which had that look of apprehension in them which makes complete strangers apprehensive, too. We have a brief glimpse of Mrs. Dalloway through his eyes, presumably from across the street. Mrs. Dalloway, coming to the window with her arms full of sweet peas, looked out with her little pink face pursed in enquiry. The car that has backfired apparently carries some important person in it, but no one is quite sure who it is. The car has stalled and pulls over to the curb, 
and the person in the back of the car pulls a curtain over the window so he or she can't be seen. But this prompts a buzz of speculation among the passers-by about whether the car's occupant is the queen or prince or the prime minister. The people are quite absorbed in this speculation. At this point, Wolf brilliantly telescopes time in a scene that is somewhat reminiscent of Percy Shelley's poem Ozymandias from earlier in the course. As was the case in Shelley's poem, Wolf presents a very different temporal landscape. Quote, the face itself had been seen only once by three people for a few seconds. Even the sex was now in dispute, but there could be no doubt that greatness was seated within. Greatness was passing, hidden down Bond Street, removed only by a hand's breadth from ordinary people who might now, for the first and last time, be within speaking distance of the majesty of England, of the enduring symbol of the state which will be known to curious antiquaries sifting the ruins of time, when London is a grass-grown path and all those hurrying along the pavement this Wednesday morning are but bones, with a few wedding rings mixed up in their dust and the gold stoppings of innumerable decayed teeth. The face in the motor car will then be known. End quote. This is a brilliant passage because Wolf takes this present day that in the novel is all important, the presence of the present, and then shows us what this great city would look like in the far distant future when London is just a grass-grown path and all of us are a mere collection of dust, wedding rings, and gold fillings from our teeth. This is followed by the ironic punchline, the face in the motor car will then be known, as if future archaeologists would know who was in the car even if we don't know now. The passage of a presumed government official also causes the passers-by to have patriotic thoughts about the empire, the flag, and the war dead, for almost all of them have lost loved ones or known those who have. Immediately thereafter is another common event that unites all the people, the presence of an aeroplane that everyone notices. The aeroplane is a symbol of the recent war because all can recall its role as a warplane. It also represents technology and modernism, but here it is used as a symbol of commerce because it is skywriting. Everyone is trying to make out what it is that the letters in the sky say, and ultimately they realize that the letters are an advertisement for toffee. It is a modernist and almost postmodernist moment, for this great symbol of technological achievement in modern warfare is here used for something as mundane as advertising a snack. Yet it also unites the crowd into a common spectacle a common experience. There are several more handoffs of consciousness that occur. We go back to Clarissa, to the wife of Septimus Warren Smith, then to Septimus, and then to another passerby who notices two people in a park. The two are Septimus and his wife, and from the viewpoint of the passerby, we discern that Septimus is suffering from some malady. The term at the time was shell shock, but today we know this as post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Septimus has all the classic symptoms of this. 
He and his wife are sitting in the park. He is muttering various pronouncements and attempting to write them down on an envelope. He thinks the skywriting is a signal to him. Quote, men must not cut down trees. There is a God. He noted such revelations on the backs of envelopes. Change the world. No one kills from hatred. Make it known. He wrote it down. He waited. He listened. A sparrow perched on the railing opposite chirped, Septimus, Septimus, four or five times over and went on, drawing its notes out to sing freshly and piercingly in Greek words how there is no crime. And joined by another sparrow, they sang in voices prolonged and piercing in Greek words from trees in the meadow of life beyond a river where the dead walk, how there is no death. End quote. Septimus is imagining that the birds are speaking Greek as a rather haunting detail. In one of Virginia Woolf's breakdowns in 1904, she had an auditory hallucination, imagining that birds were singing to her in Greek. Septimus is speaking out loud, and his poor wife cannot make any sense of it. We see them from the vantage point of a young woman named Maisie Johnson, who is just looking for the Regent's Park tube station, the subway. She was only up from Edinburgh two days ago, and we get her perception of the pair. Both seemed queer, Maisie Johnson thought. Everything seemed very queer. In London, for the first time, come to take up a post at her uncle's in Leadenhall Street, and now walking through Regent's Park in the morning, this couple on the chairs gave her quite a turn, the young woman seeming foreign, the man looking queer, so that should she be very old, she would still remember and make it jangle again among her memories how she had walked through Regent's Park on a fine summer's morning fifty years ago, for she was only nineteen and had got her way at last to come to London, and now how queer it was, this couple she had asked the way of, and the girl started and jerked her hand, and the man, he seemed awfully odd, quarreling, perhaps, parting forever, perhaps, something was up, she knew, and now all these people, for she returned to the broad walk, the stone basins, the prim flowers, the old men and women, invalids, most of them in bath chairs, all seemed, after Edinburgh, so queer, end quote. We have this view of Septimus and Rezia from the perspective of Maisie Johnson, who notices that they seem queer, that is, odd or peculiar. And then Wolf gives us another one of these moments when she telescopes forward in time. It is as if Maisie Johnson is anticipating her future memory. She knows that 50 years from now, she will still remember this morning. Ware then passed along in turn to a Mrs. Dempster, then to a Mr. Bentley, then to an unknown man. A few more characters to introduce. Richard Dalloway is Clarissa's husband, a conservative or Tory member of Parliament. Sally Seaton is an old friend, and perhaps more than a friend, at least in Clarissa's mind, because she feels that she was once a little in love with Sally, much as Wolfe herself was drawn to some women in her own life, especially the lesbian poet Vita Sackville-West, though no one seems to know for certain whether the relationship was explicitly sexual or not. 
Sally Seton is evidently a bit on the wild side. One of Clarissa's memories of Sally is of her passing her William Morris books in brown paper bags. Morris being the Victorian novelist, poet, artist, architect, designer of chairs and wallpaper, and also a notorious proponent of socialism. There is also a memory of Sally running naked through the house. How ironic that Clarissa is now married to a Tory MP, for she and Sally read Shelley by the hour, referring, of course, to the radical poet. One passage in particular about Sally is suggestive of Augustine's threefold present, as Clarissa recalls her excitement at Sally's having come to stay at Clarissa's house. Quote, she is beneath this roof. She is beneath this roof. No, the words meant absolutely nothing to her now. She could not even get an echo of her old emotion but she could remember going cold with excitement and doing her hair in a kind of ecstasy. Now the old feeling began to come back to her as she took out her hairpins, laid them on the dressing table, began to do her hair. With the rooks flaunting up and down in the pink evening light and dressing and going downstairs and feeling as she crossed the hall, if it were now to die, t'were now to be most happy. That was her feeling, Othello's feeling, and she felt it. She was convinced as strongly as Shakespeare meant Othello to feel it, all because she was coming down to dinner in a white frock to meet Sally Seton. What Clarissa is doing is remembering her excited anticipation of meeting Sally. She is in the present of present things, remembering a moment in her past when she was anticipating what was then in her future. Clarissa also recalls a time when she was at Borton walking with Sally and some friends. She and Sally fell a little behind. Then came the most exquisite moment of her whole life, passing a stone urn with flowers in it. Sally stopped, picked a flower, kissed her on the lips. The whole world might have turned upside down. The others disappeared. There she was alone with Sally, and she felt that she had been given a present, wrapped up and told just to keep it, not to look at it, a diamond, something infinitely precious, wrapped up which, as they walked, up and down, up and down, she uncovered, or the radiance burst through, the revelation, the religious feeling, when old Joseph and Peter faced them, end quote. We learn that Clarissa's recent illness was influenza. She was a victim of the influenza pandemic of 1918-19. She has survived, but the illness has left its mark on her, left her pale and has possibly weakened her heart. One more example of this Augustinian threefold present is this paragraph. Laying her brooch on the table, she had a sudden spasm, as if, while she mused, the icy claws had had the chance to fix in her. She was not old yet. She had just broken into her 52nd year. Months and months of it were still untouched. June, July, August... Each still remained almost whole, and as if to catch the falling drop, Clarissa, crossing to the dressing table, plunged into the very heart of the moment, 
transfixed it there, the moment of this June morning, on which was the pressure of all the other mornings, seeing the glass, the dressing table, and all the bottles afresh, collecting the whole of her at one point as she looked into the glass, seeing the delicate pink face of the woman who was that very night to give a party, of Clarissa Dalloway, of herself." We really see several timescapes working here in this present. Clarissa's thought about all the months that are still untouched or that remain in the year represent her anticipation of the rest of the year. At the same time, we have the language about plunging into the very heart of the moment, transfixing it there, that word plunge again, that we saw at the very beginning of the novel. At the same time, she also feels the pressure of all the other mornings, that is, the mornings in the past, now in memory. All of this is wrapped up in Clarissa's anticipation of the party to come at the end of the day. This is very much what Augustine was writing about, that there is a present of present things, a present of past things, and a present of future things.